Hello, everyone. My name is Rusty Pepper, and I'm the host of the Why Marketing Podcast. My guest today is Lori Marcus, a corporate board director, a board advisor, and if that's not enough, she also leads the direct-to-patient work stream at Harvard Business School's Craft Precision Medicine Accelerator. She comes to those roles having been a senior brand and marketing leader at large consumer companies like PepsiCo, Cura Green Mountain, and Peloton. So, Lori, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rusty. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for being on. And love for you just to kind of kick off the show this morning by just talking a little bit about yourself and explaining your background and who you are. Yes, great. So I feel like we'll spend most of the time talking about uh, the professional side of my background and what I'm doing now. But what I'd like to do is just start off a little bit of a personal introduction. So uh, Lori Marcus grew up in New Jersey. I've lived in Connecticut for the past 33 years now. I have two grown daughters. The second daughter just graduated from college a few weeks ago. So we're officially empty nesters, which is really exciting. And they'll both be working in New York, which is uh, near and dear to my heart because we live in Connecticut just up the road. I'm a wife. I'm a daughter of a very feisty 92-year-old mother. Uh, I'm a sister. I'm an athlete. Personally, I'm a real health and wellness. Uh, I like somebody say nut, and then I remind myself to say enthusiast, health and wellness enthusiast, Um, eating healthy, getting up early every morning and exercising. I love to run. I love to, to spin and power walk and hike and all of that, and then play at golf. So that's just a little bit about uh, who I am personally. Professionally, let me try and describe this. I usually describe my career kind of in three easy chapters. I'll lay it out for you and then leave it to you to probe where you might have interest on any of that. So three ways, uh, three chapters. The first is sort of the academy consumer products years. Uh, Very fortunate. I spent most of my adult life working at PepsiCo. There for 24 years. Really did everything that you can do in the area of marketing and general management. Really across the whole company, different geographies. That was a wonderful experience. I left there uh, to start my chapter two, which was really the C-suite years. And I was a chief marketing officer, chief brand officer, chief product officer. I worked in retail. I worked at Cura Green Mountain up in Boston, interim CMO for Peloton Cycle here in New York. And that was great. Uh, That's really where I got my chops on e-commerce, social, digital, direct-to-consumer, all of that, which was a really nice complement to the work that I had done at PepsiCo, where you're marketing directly to consumers, but you're really selling through retailers, be those retail retailers or food service and hospitality retailers. So those were the chapter two years. Great experience. Feel so blessed to have had that experience. But I realized at some point that the thing that I had trained my whole life for, to be a C-suite executive in these major companies, great brands, um, that I just wasn't so enchanted by it anymore and I wasn't loving it. And I realized I was ready to do something, kind of the next chapter. And so my chapter three has really been more of a portfolio career. And that career is, I still work full time, but it's much more self-propelled. I work across a number of different industries and really different areas. So it's part Uh, corporate board work. I sit on four corporate boards. I also do board advisory work with founders of early stage companies. Of course, I have my nonprofit boards. Then I work part-time for a precision medicine accelerator that's run through Harvard Business School, funded by the Kraft family. Uh, And then I'm just really getting going on kind of the third piece of that, of my chapter three, which is executive coaching and keynote speaking. So it's, it's a full plate 
super interesting. No day is like the day before it. And I really love it. And I'm hoping I'm probably about two and a half years in, and I'm hoping that it's two and a half years into what's going to be a multi-decade chapter three that will take different, you know, different turns. And I don't have to know today exactly what it's going to look like. I love the enthusiasm that you have. I also love the way you told your story. I mean, <laughs> thank you. Chapters. I think it was a very creative way to be able to explain really the, the tranches of your time that you spent building your career and, and everything that you've really gained from each of those different chapters. Now, you think is interesting is, and looking back at your background, you actually went to school actually to become a marketer. This is something you yeah. always wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting is so. In full transparency, so I went off to college. I went to University of Pennsylvania. I had no idea what I was going to do. I was good at, in high school, I was a good student. I worked very hard. You know, I got the math award and the French award in high school. Wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with that in college. My father, may he rest in peace, I think was actually a little bit of a feminist before his time. He had two daughters, and he was very focused on we must get skilled in a way that we could always support ourselves. I mean, I think he wanted us to get married and have families, but he was very focused on the fact that he wanted us to be able to support ourselves. And so in an odd way, he, uh, while they loved the liberal arts education, I think they pushed us to do things that were a little bit more pre-professional. So I wasn't quite sure when I went in, I started in liberal arts and I wasn't really sure what I was gonna do again, being good at French and math and things like that. I ended up my sophomore year actually transferring into the Wharton School, and that was just a great move for me. I took a marketing class, I think first semester, sophomore year, and I feel like it changed everything for me. Everything sort of fell into place. I wasn't one of these kids. My mom always said I should be a lawyer because I'm you know, pretty good at stating a case and standing up and fighting for it, but I'm a very slow reader. And so I thought that really wouldn't work out well because I knew there was a lot of reading to do if you were going to study to be a lawyer. And when I took a marketing class, everything sort of fell into place for me because marketing is this really interesting breed of even at that time many years ago you know analytics and you know it's it's conceptual it's creative it's strategic again you have to be analytical but there's also a physicality to it so the whole notion of the four p's you know product price packaging physical distribution promotion everyone says the p's differently but that notion that it's very concrete you know it's not like macroeconomic theory or higher level math where i, I couldn't I couldn't envision it or even things like accounting where there was sort of a right or a wrong answer none of that really gelled with me and when i took marketing it all fell into place because it was such an interesting blend of all those different skills. And again, there was something really concrete about it. You could go to a grocery store and hold up a package and look at it and realize that somebody had obsessed about what the, what the wording was going to be, what the graphics were going to be. The other thing about marketing, which I didn't learn until years later when I was at PepsiCo and is actually kind of doing the craft, was, so think about classic brand management. And I remember describing at some point talking to somebody, it was probably one of my parents' friends, and I was describing what I was doing. And I was maybe an associate product manager on Mountain Dew or something like that. And I would describe to them what was in that. And they'd say, oh, like a new product. Do you physically, like, are you a chemist? Do you make the product? No, I don't do that. You know, oh, the commercials. So you're like behind the camera and you're the one who's shooting the commercial. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. I write the creative brief and direct the agencies. 
making the commercial and the graphics. So you, you know, you draw the graphics for that. No, 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 no. Yeah. And you sort of, you realize how much influence leadership, driving lead, you know, impact through others, how much all of that is necessary to do marketing and kind of classical brand management. And I feel like in some ways that was such a natural fit with my skill set as well. I have said many times, a little bit overly self-deprecating, but I always say, I don't know how to do anything, but I know how to get everything done. And I think in hindsight, that was something I didn't realize being a sophomore sitting there in my Wharton classes in marketing, but I think it was a really good blend of my skills and passion and you know, a way to make a living for myself and for my family. I would certainly say it's definitely served you well. <laughs> Thank you. You know, it's nice to hear that when people find something, especially during college, those are the years that most people kind of struggle to figure out really what do they want to do? They get pulled, yeah. do I go follow my parents' footsteps or do I go where my friends are going? And you know, to try to navigate those waters at that age and, and really find something that you've really felt like, boy, this is what I want to do. Yeah, I, yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I want to do. <laughs> Maybe my next chapter, I think I'm on chapter I'm close to chapter three right now. Uh, That's okay. Please God, we'll all live long and full lives with many chapters and kind of keep you know, people, the word pivot is so overused right now, but I like to think about you just keep, it's not even reinventing yourself. It's just kind of keep refreshing yourself and, you know, taking on new skills, doubling down on certain things that you like. And then, you know, sometimes there's these moments where you sort of, where there's, you know, big changes and you sort of jump off the diving board and you do something that's a little bit scary. And I think having that blend of chapters that are a little bit more incremental and some that are a little scarier and more dramatic, I think Hopefully it makes for a really long, full, interesting, and productive life. Provides balance too. And I, 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 I actually had you phrase that as being re- refreshing, right? Mm-hmm. As you refresh each chapter. That's exactly what you need is you sometimes yeah. you need to be re-energized, yes. re-excited, re-engaged. Yes. And yes. Uh, I think yes. refreshing is the best way to put that. So let's talk about that chapter three. Because I know when we last spoke, you were talking about how CMOs serving as board directors. Yeah, yeah. Can you mm-hmm. kind of elaborate kind of from your experience, the value that CMOs can bring to corporate boards? Yeah, Have yeah. It. So I think, and I would say CMOs and, and certainly operating executives overall beyond kind of your traditional CFOs. So I was lucky. I started my board service actually 15 years ago. I joined the board of the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation. And we can talk separately about why I actually think nonprofit board service can be such a great Um, way to prepare yourself ultimately for corporate board service, both public and private companies. But what I love about the board work that I do, and most of the boards that I sit on, I'm the one person who's kind of a classically trained marketer, you know, brand expert, social media, e-commerce, digital marketer. You know, I'm the person that kind of brings that skill set to the table. The others tend to be more, you know, retired CFO types, bankers, et cetera. And it's just, I think it's two things. I think one is in many cases, 
you know, you are the person that was, you know, a P&L owner, an operating executive. And I think there's a way that you relate to the management team in terms of understanding what they do day in and day out that I think is really helpful. The other thing is in so many of our boards, we're talking about, you know, launching products online, you know, launching a direct to consumer business, selling through Amazon, redoing our loyalty program, working not just with retailers, but also with e-tailers, you know, like a Walgreens.com or CVS.com, opening up new channels of distribution, connecting with consumers, storytelling. And I think it's very important to have somebody on the board, not who's doing the work of the organization, but who can so comfortably talk that language with the management team, know the right questions to ask, know where to probe, and to really serve. If you think about a board director from the standpoint of, you know, CEO succession and management succession, corporate strategy and enterprise risk management, it seems so odd to me that there are still boards today that don't have at least one person sitting on their board who's an expert in all of the areas that I just described. Certainly, you know, it plays out that way on the bigger boards that I'm on. And on some of the smaller boards, I'm also able to make introductions for them when they're looking for PR firm or a branding agency or somebody to help them with events or things like that. So it's also a way, I feel like this is just an added bonus that I'm able to use, you know, my contacts, my connections that I've had in this world for, you know, 30 plus years, bring that to bear on the part of the organization just like my colleagues on the board are able to help them when they're talking about refinancing the debt and things like that. It's just a really good balance on a board. So I, I think it's great. I would love to see all boards get to the point where not where they don't just have, you know, CFOs and CEOs on the board, but also people with marketing, digital e-commerce experience, as well as, you know, cybersecurity and other things like that. Why do you think that most boards haven't gone more that route? It's a, it's a really good question. I think like many things, as I think about boards, there's so much inertia. So a real passion point for me, and I promise not to hijack your, uh, your uh, podcast, is, is that if you, women on boards, uh, it's the, the numbers are just crazy in terms of the opportunity that there is, I'll say it in a positive way, to have more representation of women on boards, especially large corporate boards. We all know this, diverse teams make better decisions and have better outcomes, full stop. So when you start to delve into and work that I've done with the National Association of Corporate Directors, Women Corporate Directors, other organizations I'm a part of, part of what you learn is the reason that it doesn't change more, it's not because of ill will on anybody's part. It's a couple things, one of which is, and this is the marketing issue as well, it's inertia. So there's not great turnover on boards. And so if you think about it, many boards don't have term limits or age limits. And so you have people sitting on boards and they're there for a long time. So it's not like something like if you think about, you know, the average tenure of a CMO, I don't know if it's 18 months or 24 months or 36 months, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of churn there. There's churn with chief marketing officers, there's churn with agencies, things like that. But on boards in general, there isn't a lot of turnover. And so that impacts both the ability for talented, experienced women to serve on corporate boards, as well as to make the change to start to complement 
again, the great experience that you get with CFOs and CEOs to bring in people with different experiences. So I think inertia is a large part of it. And then I think the other thing is most board searches, I don't know the exact number, most board searches other than the tip, tip, top public companies um, most of them don't go through your traditional recruiters. Many of the, when there's an opening, somebody will say, oh, I got a guy, I got a guy. And so they'll bring in a friend. And most people, you know, who are sitting on boards, if you think about it, it's a, you know, pick a number. It's a 65-year-old white man who was a CFO or a CEO. And chances are, you know, the guy that he's going to bring in, his buddy, who he'll recommend, who he can really vouch for everything about that person, chances are they're another 65-year-old white man who is a retired CFO or CEO. So I think both the combination of the inertia, there isn't a lot of movement and openings, and then the fact that so many board members are sourced from existing board members, it just creates this inability to really change it. So if somebody wants to serve on a board, Mm -hmm. what would be your recommendation? So I was just having a conversation with another extremely talented woman, former CEO of an agency, and she was laughing and she said, it's like the greatest mystery of all time. And she serves on either two or three very large public company boards. She's very successful in her own right. And she said, you know, it's just kind of a mystery. And we were laughing about it. We were sitting at the pen club, looking around at the other 65-year-old white men around us, uh, sort of laughing. So it is a little bit, it, you know, it's different from, I think, when you're trying to you know, you're a senior vice president in marketing and you want to become a chief marketing officer. I feel like that's a sort of a linear thing. You know how to do that. You know, which recruiters to network with. You sort of, there's a little bit of a a playbook. So I think with boards, I think if you're, you know, you're Indra Nui who just stepped down as the CEO of PepsiCo, it's not a mystery. You announce that you're going to retire as the CEO of PepsiCo and your phone rings off the hook. And then ultimately you decide to join the board of Amazon and whatever else she decides to do. But most people aren't Indra Nui, you know, the third most powerful woman in the world at any given moment. So I think for sort of, you know, just regular talented, super successful executives, it's just, it's a little bit more of a not a sort of a direct line. And what I would say as I think about my experience, so a couple things. One is, let's say you're a sitting CMO, especially of a well-known company, a public company, a name brand company. Oftentimes the first step is letting your intentions be known to the universe. Let it be known to your CEO, to other people on your board, your you know, head of HR, all those kind of things. The search network that you know about putting together a board bio and a board resume. I think if you're a sitting C-suite executive, there's kind of one path. In my case, I thought about that a lot, especially when I was at Keurig, chief brand and product officer of a $5 billion public company. And the reality of it was between our monthly operations operating reviews, our monthly product plan meetings, our quarterly board meetings, our corporate earnings calls, you know, my calendar was booked pretty much four days a week, every day, every week. So I couldn't barely make it to my nonprofit boards, let alone if I were going to join a public company board where you're committing to 12 days a year and you do not miss those dates. So I'm always a little bit in awe of people who are sitting C-suite executives who were able to land their first board seat while they're in that operating role. I could not figure out, quite honestly, I could not figure out how to do it. It was enough that I could get home from Boston, do my laundry on the weekend, see my family, 
grab a workout, grab a latte with a friend, <laughs> pretty much in addition to my job, that was kind of all I could do. So then when I left, I was in this position where I said, okay, when I left Keurig, I said, I'd like to now sit on corporate boards and do public speaking. And I remember people said, well, how are you going to do that? And I said, I have no earthly idea, but I'm just going to put one foot in front of another. I'm going to make my intentions known to the universe and I will figure it out. So to answer your question, I think in my case, I had joined a nonprofit board, like I said, you know, 15 years ago now, which ended up being great experience for me and really taught me what it's like, the whole notion of governance, working through others, doing long-term strategy, not necessarily be the one that's writing it and presenting it to the board, but actually being on the other side of that table. I learned a lot through my nonprofit boards. And so what I did is what people say to do, which is let everybody on the planet know your intentions. That's people you sit on your current board with, people in your professional network. I got more involved with National Association of Corporate Directors. And it was every recruiter that I knew, I asked them to connect me. I tended to know the people that were doing the marketing vertical or the CMO vertical. I asked them to introduce me to the people that did the board work within their practice. So there were, as I think about it, if I were drawing the PowerPoint slide, there's so many different sort of tentacles, seeds that you plant. And I just planted all of the seeds. And quite honestly, I wasn't sure where my first corporate board role would come from. But what everybody told me was just get the first one. And then the second one will be easier. The third one will be easier. And by the time you get to three and certainly the fourth one, you can be a little bit more in the driver's seat about which ones you take and don't take. And so as it turned out, the first corporate board that I joined, a private equity-backed firm out in Ohio, they're a large uh, private DNA tester. And it turns out I was on a CEO succession call for my nonprofit board. We were doing that thing that you do. It was, I'm the vice chair. I was on the phone with the chair and we, and I'm sure you can relate to what I'm about to describe. We were in that awkward four minute period where you're waiting for a third person to join the conference call. They say they're going to be late. So you need to make small talk but not so personal small talk that when the other person joins on, you're not talking about your hopes, your dreams, your fears, uh, and you know your marital issues. And so this guy's name is Mike. So Mike and I were talking and we were sort of having that kind of adult conversation about, oh, Mike, are you still working for XYZ firm? And he said, no, did I not tell you? We sold the company and now I started a private equity firm. And he said, oh, are you still commuting to Boston uh, You know, with Keurig? And I said, no, I really needed to get back to Connecticut. I'm back home. I want to join corporate boards. And he said, oh, that's so funny. Our company just bought our first U.S. investment. We just invested in a company out there. We're looking for an independent board director, somebody who has both retail and branding, direct-to-consumer and healthcare experience. Is that something that you would be interested in? And like I said, it was just one of those things. It was a make your intentions known to everyone in the world because you never know. And like I said, that was my first board. I joined that in early 2016. I'm actually the chair of that board, which was kind of a big leap. And um, I feel like the, the second board, it was I was much more confident as I talked to people about joining my second board, because I wasn't talking about theoretically what I could add. 
as a for-profit company board director, I had actual experience doing that. And so it just, it's a little bit about the universe doesn't really want to take a chance on you. They want, they say they do, but they really want things to be kind of assured. And then a large part of it is also you have the confidence because you've sat on that side of the table and you understand how to work through others and sit on the side of the table where maybe you're asking more questions than you're answering. So it was a combination. Just talking about the board in itself and how you get there. I mean, makes me want to go join a board right now <laughs> yeah. just because I'm like, okay, I got to go figure this out. But I hey, mean, you, have, you have an audio cast. You can just, you know, you can tell the world you're in I need to be right? on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, but just how you got there and, and, you know, putting yourself out there. I think that's so important because so many people don't do that. They're, yes. they kind of keep it to themselves yes. when the saying is pretty true. The squeaky wheel gets the grief. Yes, yes, you gotta yes. let people know. I think people are Absolutely. so afraid that the impressions people are gonna get by saying those things. That's yes. how you get ahead. Yes, absolutely. And I think, and that's something, I think I'm better about that as a chapter three adult than I was in my corporate career. I was often guilty, you know, on that continuum where on one end, somebody's like in their office doing the work and just thinking the work is going to get them noticed. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, and these are the far ends of the continuum, you have people who really don't do anything and they're just out there politicking. Let's just say that neither end of the spectrum is right. I think in, especially in the early days of my corporate career, I was probably a little bit guilty of the person who was like in my office doing really good work and just thinking the work would speak for itself. And I think I had to push myself out of my comfort zone and realize, okay, 95% can be the work, but 5% has to be you advocating for yourself and talking about the work. So I think I've gotten better about that over time. The other thing, and I apologize in advance because I'm going to botch the title, but there's a great book. It's a Deepak Chopra book, and it's about, um, again, apologize, I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but it's about harnessing the um, unbelievable power of coincidences. And it's sort of that notion, I, I use it all the time, which is about just letting your intentions be known to the universe. And whether it's you're looking for a job, whether it's you're, you know, you're looking for a, you know, someone to paint your house, or it doesn't matter what it is, a caregiver for your mother, whatever it is. Certainly people do this much more instinctively now with social media. You know, they just put things, hey, I'm looking for XYZ. But I think harnessing that power of the magic of the world, when you state your intentions to the universe, and to everybody you know, and you put things out there and you kind of open the door mentally, physically, emotionally, metaphorically, and then things start to come your way. And so I think a lot of it for me has been this combination of a little bit more of the confidence, leaving a little of the imposter syndrome at the door. And then also when there's something that I want to do and not exactly knowing how I'm going to do it, like I said, just letting it be known in every conversation that this is something that I want to do. It is just amazing how ideas and thoughts, tools, connections start to come your way. I want to actually make sure I get that book added into the podcast. So I'm going to put that link in there. It's great. Yeah. I love Deepak Chopra. I wanted to kind of switch gears just a little bit because I could literally probably spend the rest of the day talking to you about chapter three in itself, just because I think there's just so much in it. But got to ask you one thing, if you could be doing anything else, yeah, what would you do? Yeah, 
I think if I weren't doing anything professional, which I can't imagine that world, I would love to get up every morning, go for a run, go to yoga, (laughs) Um, get better at golf, play tennis, see one of my friends every day. That's my sort of like, someday I'm going to do more of that. But professionally, and I'm sure you've done this when you've been in icebreaker sessions and you have to like name your favorite candy or your favorite job or what's on your, you know, what are you listening to? What podcast do you like? But one of the ones I love, I think you learn so much when you go around the room and you say, if you didn't do this, what would you be doing or what you what would you have done? And my thing always, it's so obvious to me, is I would be an organizational psychologist. I am fascinated, riveted by how organizations work. I mean, I think it's the same gene that got me into consumer marketing, how, how consumers work, why they do what they do, why they buy, all of that. I've always been fascinated by that. But that same kind of thing, I mean, having spent, you know, 30 years working in corporate America, I am riveted by why organizations behave the way that they do. And I'm also really fascinated by the whole future of work, the role of technology, the whole skill building, you know, kind of reskilling yourself, upskilling yourself, and reverse mentoring, all of those things. And I think that I'm not going to go back and get a PhD in organizational psychology, but I think that as I've spent a lot of time trying to get really smart in that area, I think it will help me greatly as I add, you know, C-suite level executive coaching to this chapter of my professional life. And I was sitting here thinking you were going to say, I would go climb Everest. I would, (laughs) all the energy you have, it would be like, (laughs) I'm going to go, you know. Yeah, I would like to do. I'm a, um, I'm a like a long time, slow and short distance runner. You know, I do five Ks all the time, and so one of my like very short term goals is uh is I'd like to do a ten K. So my my aspirations on the athlete side are fairly fairly modest. But yeah, I'm afraid of heights. I'm not going to Everest anytime. <laughs> not making that. No. no. I, I can't blame. You. I don't like cold, so I would just. Not yeah, do very there you well. go. Yeah, I don't like cold either. <laughs> That eliminated me right away. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, if you had one piece of advice you'd give your younger self, what would that be? So I think for me, I mentioned sort of this imposter syndrome a little bit ago. I kind of threw it out there. And I think for me, I'm such a classic, like, such an archetype of like, you know, your classic overachiever, you know, and, you know, a towering strength of overuse becomes a development need. I'm such a sort of a high achiever, really, you know, hard on myself. And I think for me, for a lot of my career, the things that came naturally to me and that I was legitimately good at, you know, sort of leadership, being a conceptual thinker, creating great culture, leading and working through others. I mean, so many things that, uh, you know, I'm a public speaking comes very easy to me. There's a lot of things that come easy to me and I'm, you know, no false humility. I'm good at. I didn't value those things. I just thought, well, yeah, like those are just easy. They don't count. And I almost didn't credit myself with any of the things that came naturally to me. I sort of only focused on either the things that I wasn't good at, that I had to overcome to get to the next level or get the next job. And I also think that I would, I over-focused on the things that I wasn't good at. And like I said, legitimately, there's a lot of things that I am good at. I've spent time over, uh, you know, over a long career trying to take the things that I'm good at and get better at them. 
get great at them, think about what it would look like if I were the best in the world at that. But I think for too long, I was overly focused on, like I said, not valuing those things and overly focusing on the things that I'm not good at. There's tons of things I'm not good at. And I think if I were giving advice to my younger self, it's not the advice that people give young people now where they say, do what you love and only focus on what you're good at. It's not that. But I think like most things, there's the continuum. And I was so at the end of the continuum, which was, ah, don't value what you're good at. And then overly focus at the things you need to get better at. I think I would say to my younger self, you know what, move a little bit along and be balanced about, yes, understand what you're not good at and your weaknesses. You have to figure out how to get them to standard so they don't get in your way, but don't spend time trying to make them strengths. And also stop spending your airtime talking to the whole world about them. You know, you should spend more of your airtime talking about the things that you're good at, seeking advice to how to get better at it, asking people to help you think about what it would look like if you were great at it, what it would look like if you could use that skill and be the best in the world at that. So I think I would give myself, younger self, the advice to be a little bit more balanced and value the things about yourself that naturally that they come naturally to you. Just because something comes naturally, it doesn't mean that it's not valuable. And I think I was a little messed up about that early but in my career. Those things that come easy mm -hmm. help you become successful. I mean, because those mm -hmm. are your skills. Those are your yes. natural abilities. Exactly, exactly. You never see a professional baseball player who didn't have a natural <laughs> ability to play baseball. You know? Exactly. They may have exactly. to work harder. They may not have as yes. much ability, but they have to work harder at it maybe yes. than somebody else. Yes, but exactly. It's a natural ability. Exactly. So that's that's something that again, I don't spend a lot of time beating myself up about it, but I think if I could have known that, you know, 30 years ago, it, it would have been a good thing to know. And, and hearing you talk, I mean, you have a you have a phenomenal mindset. I mean, it's a very you're driven, you've got a positive outlook, you're you've got a tremendous amount of energy and overachiever. How did where did that come? Where do you think that came from? Was that something that you, your parents had instilled in you or just do you think that's something that is just natural? Yeah. I, you know, like I said, I never did go get the PhD in psychology. So I can't tell you the like the actual, you know, factual answer of how much of it is nature versus nurture. So I'm sure I was somewhat wired that way to start, but definitely there was a piece of it growing up in my house. And so I can remember, like I said, I was a good student. I worked very hard. I was not one of those people that things just came easy to and I just got A's. I worked very, very, very hard, but I was a very good student in high school. But it was the kind of household that if you came home and you got a 95, my dad would say with a lot of love, he was a wonderful and supportive dad, but with a lot of love in his voice, he would say, what happened to the other five points? And again, not in a way that was bad in any way, but it was just very much, you know, we were not the kind of house where you got, I knew kids who got, their parents gave them a dollar for every A they got on their report card. I mean, we were just expected to make A's, you know, my sister and I both graduated in the top five, you know, we both made speeches at graduation. Like it was just expected that you would work hard, you would do well, not at the exclusion of having a social life. And, you know, we both played tennis in high school. You know, we did all the things you're supposed to do as a well-rounded kid. But it was known from a very early age that you were expected to have really good grades and do well. And I think that's just been, been with me throughout my entire life as far back as I can remember.
hearing what your father would say to you, <laughs> it, it's exactly what I say. I say to my kids, I'm like, yeah, you? look, I, I was not the best student, but I always tell my kids, I go, you're not idiots. You know, you're the expectation right. is this is what you get. I mean, yes. if you were a moron, I would expect you to get, okay, it's okay to get C's and D's and that's because that's the best <laughs> you could do, but right. you're not. So let's, right. let's really do, use your skills, use what you have because the whole world, you know, people would love to be in the positions that you have. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And if you think about it, you know, like I said, I feel very blessed. I was born in a family. We were, you know, very modest means financially, but I was very lucky. I had two parents who loved me unconditionally. We had, you know, food on the table every night. Both my sister and I, when it came time to go into college, my parents said we could go to the college that we wanted to go to. And, you know, they scrapped together between, you know, student loans and financial age and work study jobs. And my mom had a part-time job and, you know, we kind of pulled it all together. I don't ever want to take for granted what an advantage that is in your life when you have parents, when you start out with parents who give you all of that. And I think part of it, exactly what you said is, you know, part of what comes with that is a parent who says, you know, bring your full self to everything you do and don't phone it in. And I agree with you. I think if my father thought that the best I could do was be a C student or be a B student, I think he would have known and he would have tempered his remarks accordingly. But he knew my sister and I were both capable of being A students and he pushed us to go there, you know, every day in every way. And, you know, I'm grateful for that. Well, you're driven. I mean, it's right, right, you hold right. high expectations. Right. Absolutely. For myself and what I always say is it's okay to hold other people to have high expectations for other people if you also have high expectations for yourself. And that's personally and professionally, you know, ethically, morally, as well as, you know, working hard and doing the right thing every day. And so, yeah, I think it's just, I think it's just who I am. I appreciate you sharing your story, your background, your experiences with us. Uh, I'm excited to kind of continue to follow you and see what else is next. Thank I know you. obviously Thank Everest you. will not be in the picture. <laughs> Everest will not be in the picture, but, but maybe, uh, maybe a 10K. A 10K will be. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, good. Well, hey, thank you again for being on the show. Thanks for your time, Rusty. I appreciate right. Best it. Best of luck with everything. Okay, take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.